Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Defined Engagement Bookcast. I'm Doug Fine. Today we'll be talking to author Devin Halliday. He wrote the book Belonging Factor, How Great Brands and Great Leaders Inspire Loyalty, Build Community, and Grow Profits. We're going to be talking about Chapter 1 today, and it's called How I Came to Believe in Belonging. Welcome, Devin. Good to see you. Hey, everybody. Good to see you today. I'm here with Devin Halliday, who is the author of this book, Belonging Factor, How Great Brands and Great Leaders Inspire Loyalty, Build Community, and Grow Profits. Devin, thanks for being here with me. And just a little bit, tiny bit about myself. I'm in Augusta. Devin's in Pittsburgh for now. And I run a small consultancy in Augusta which helps organizations with engagement, leader development, employee training. So, Devin, thank you for being here. You also have a company. It's called Rudiment Solutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar work. Uh, a lot of work around uh, belonging, sense of belonging, and how that translates to productivity, uh, as well as some of the strategic pieces within organizations to help them empower their people to deliver the results that right now uh, mm-hmm. they, they're finding a need to do. So, yeah, it's a uh, it, it, it's been fantastic to talk to you a little bit already on the intro. I can't wait to talk about, uh, get into the meat of the book here with you. Yeah, we're going yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna to explore chapter one right now. Great. And it is called, How I Came to Believe in Belonging. So, Devin, how you came to believe in belonging, well, why don't you just explain that? <sighs> it was a journey, like most important things in our life. Uh, they, they happen overnight over the course of about 10 or 15 years, right? That's beautiful. So uh, ultimately for me, I grew up with this fascination, you know, Top Gun, the movie Top Gun was like massive. The Blue Angels, the Navy's flight demonstration squadron. Those things were just so impressive to me. And both my grandfathers served in the Navy. I had this idea that that's where I belong because I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so what did I do? I enlisted and I went to aviation. And I was working on the same planes that the Blue Angels fly. And I was working on the same planes that Maverick from Top Gun uh, was flying and living on aircraft carriers and going all over the world. And it was everything that as a child and growing up, it it was all of the things, all of the stuff that I said, oh, yeah, that's where I belong. Mm -hmm. And and I came to realize, and I, I discuss in much more detail in the book, but I came to realize that maybe the military as a path was not actually the path for me. So aviation and, and essentially, you know, the, the race cars of, of, mm-hmm. of uh, jets and, and all of these other really cool factors, they're still there and they're still cool, but they were just stuff. They were still, they were just things mm-hmm. and they were the what, not the why. Yeah. And, and so ultimately what I really found was uh, that we have to be adaptable and, and come to understand really kind of purpose and values. And my values and my purpose weren't those that were aligned with being a career military person. That was fine. I had a great time. We did some really important work. How good a time and, did you have? <laughs> uh, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Uh, a lot of hard work. I'll tell you that 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, you know, that's, it, it's hard work. And so, um, so uh, again, appreciated it, but realized very early on, this wasn't necessarily where I belonged. And, um, and so, but I started to really have this belief in this idea that, that as a person, there are values you have, there is a purpose that you might, um, 
ultimately really be guided to and they have to listen and be aware rather than just try to put that square peg into the round hole, which I could have done and probably could have been successful career military, retired right now, all sorts of good stuff. However, um, that started the journey for me of really believing that there's this, this true purpose and this true value alignment that you can find with what you do, whether it's for a career, whether it's you know, with your family, et cetera. And, uh, and for me, really on the career aspect was, was where I dig in in this book and mm-hmm. how it affects both leaders and their ability to uh, lead effectively and employees' ability to really uh, be incredibly engaged and incredibly effective in what they do as a result of the values of an organization and leaders. Devin, my, my whole career in uh, OD and HR and things, I used to talk about balancing people and tasks that you don't, a leader shouldn't go uh, for very long uh, favoring one over the other because you're going to lose your people if it's all about tasks, 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 and you're not going to get anything done if it's all about people, people, people. But you said something um, pretty provocative in the book in this chapter one. Um, People matter more than any KPI. Remind us what KPIs are and then tell me where where that was coming from. People matter more, period. OKRs, KPIs, right? It's a key performance indicator. Yeah. Uh, Essentially metrics and measurements to tell you, uh, are you on track for your ultimate goals of profitability and um, cost reduction? Right. Right. So so there's a, I'll share a, a very brief version of the story that I, I tell in the book, but it was my very first civilian leadership role. Mm-hmm. And I operated very much similar to how I had learned in the military about how to do leadership, uh, which is you give a command and then the command gets followed, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's do it. Uh, yes. Yes. And I mean, let's be clear if, if in the military you have the right people, those people are aligned around the value of compliance with an order mm-hmm. in in the vast majority of western civilization western culture compliance is not going to be a motivating factor but motivating towards commitment is ultimately the way to do it so my very first job i i was all about just you know numbers 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 managed results managed to the uh, the exact specific prescribed actions that i expected to get those results and uh, I had a mutiny almost on my hands from my team. And fortunately it was a team that I'd worked with long enough that they came to me about six months in and said, Hey, this isn't working. And we're going to, we're, we're going to go and we're going to, we're going to blow this whole thing up. If you don't start paying attention and listening to us, some of the ideas we have, some of the feedback we have giving us real actionable tactical discussions that aren't about our numbers. And, um, and I took that to heart. Anytime you get feedback like that, where somebody's brave enough, has the courage, has the vulnerability enough to come share that, uh, you have to listen. And as a leader, if you don't, uh, you're not a leader. That's, that's fair and simple. I will tell you, you are not a leader of people if that is the case. You, you might be a manager of, of outcomes, but you are not a leader of people. And, uh, and at that point, I was not a leader of people, but I was starting my first step to really doing that. So that for me opened up this understanding that once I stopped managing my salespeople to the sales goals they had and started talking to them about their life and what they wanted to achieve, um, you know, I, I had a, a, an employee, Nate, he wanted to go to all these music festivals, which cost money to travel and tickets and all these other things. I had another employee who wanted to buy um, a boat 
Well, then once she bought a boat, she wanted to buy a truck to haul her boat instead of waiting for her friend. And then once she bought the truck, she wanted to also buy a house. Well, what must be true to achieve all those things? You have to have money. And in sales, how do you have money? You exceed your sales quotas. So by starting with the people and really focusing and working on what those people could achieve, wanted to achieve, and working on how they could achieve it, ensuring there was alignment within our organizational um, goals, we, we all kind of that rising tide, right? We all lifted, the, the results lifted for the organization, for my team, and each of the people were achieving the thing they wanted to, the whole purpose they go to work, to be able to achieve their, their personal uh, goals, essentially, right? Financially, be able to achieve those. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's a great so, point. So ahead. that's where I say it's the people are more important than any, any KPI because you will never achieve sustained performance success if you do not have a keen eye for helping make sure your people are achieving what they want to that their value is connected into the organization's output great uh, i think that speaks to the point where most people most people don't go to work every day to go say i'm going to work today so i can meet my company's goals and make them this and we'll do this for our customers it usually comes that's that might be secondary, but it usually comes to I go to work each day and and this is the point I, I think maybe it's next chapter, but you talk about engagement, but I don't want to go there yet. Okay. I want, okay. I, I'm willing. I, I would love to ask you before we close. You talk about people generally genuinely feel they can be vulnerable and authentic and they're part of a community in which they want to belong. Vulnerability and authenticity is sometimes, it drives me nuts a little bit because nobody oftentimes is vulnerable and, and authenticity in a business setting, like re, what does that mean? I guess I'm asking, what does that mean to you? Vulnerability and, and uh, what? Authenticity in a business setting, if you're, a, if you're in a business setting. Great question. So, Listen, you know, having worked in, um, in a Fortune 15 organization for as long as I did and having interfaced and interacted with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of organizations um, mm -hmm. through consulting work and, and other pieces, it's very clear that there is always a level of fear that exists mm -hmm. in, the, in the employee base in even the best, most well-run, most people-centric organizations, there's still a level of fear of saying or doing something that, uh, or not saying or not doing something that is going to be perceived as ill-fitting for the job, um, ill-fitting for a promotion, uh, ill-fitting of you know, a, a, a raise or, or meritorious advancement this year. So when you start to, to really examine that and get under it, um, in many organizations, that fear comes from unsaid um, things, unspoken actions, behaviors, um, or oftentimes just from a, a bit of a paranoia from past experiences or other experiences that are projected mm -hmm. into this environment. And so what that does is it stifles creativity. It stifles uh, the ability to weed out or sort out an issue or problem before it becomes an issue or problem because somebody doesn't want to raise that objection now for fear of being castigated as a naysayer or as trying to derail a project when then it gets faced, you know, three or six months down the road or a year down the road. And that person who should have and could have said something to prevent it 
um, they're still keeping their mouth shut because they don't want to go, hey, uh, you know, I knew that back then, but I didn't tell you. So, so it really creates all these weird silos and dynamics of questioning whether or not somebody's motivations are genuine, et cetera. When you have an organization where your intention is to create your values, your organizational values, um, and the behaviors associated with them for all of the folks that work within your organization, you start to create this place where people know what's right and what's wrong. They know that their leaders see it the same way they see it. They know that if they have a limited perspective, that their leaders have a broader perspective and they offer something that might be off base, their leader will go, hey, I appreciate that suggestion. I'd be happy to share with you, um, you know, where that might fit into our strategy going forward. I'd be happy to share with you where our strategy is moving because it sounds like we're a little out of alignment versus something along the lines of, Karen, seriously, why are you saying this again? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, not, not that that comes up directly like that in most workplaces, but in some it does. Hey, psh, stop. No, I don't want another bad idea from you. There are, there are leaders and bosses who say this to people. Yeah. And, um, and so when you, when you really look at that idea that having that alignment of those values, having that alignment of those principles that allows somebody to, to trust the environment they're in, they can feel vulnerable. And when somebody feels vulnerable, that means they're willing to speak up on something that will avoid mistakes more than it will cause errors, mistakes, or issues. So they're worried about some sort of retribution or some sort of negative outcome from being vulnerable, either based on past experience or based on um, just a, a projection in the workforce. When in reality, you have to intentionally, deliberately, and, and regularly, consistently create an environment where vulnerability is um, and authenticity are absolutely expected and rewarded through with patience, with conversation, and with like, you know, in, in kind, a return of vulnerability. Leaders who express vulnerability genuinely uh, have a stronger, longer, and more supportive base of employees than those who don't. And they also get that vulnerability from their team, which is invaluable as a leader, where information is what you trade in every day to make your decisions. Super way to explain it. Okay. Yeah. Hey, would you be willing to, uh, I, what I'm hearing, Devin, is this concept of psychological safety on the job. Certainly. Basically, you could, if you feel safe, you can be vulnerable and you can be more authentic, be yourself. I would love uh, an example, if you're willing, just to tell me, like when you were, you were um, a pretty high-level manager at Verizon in your past. And what can you give an example of when you were vulnerable to your people? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I would say that early on, although I didn't see it at the time, that example I shared with you, where I was willing to listen to and kind mm -hmm. of yes. receive that feedback. But there's an exercise that I always have done with teams once we're about a year in um, to working with a group of folks. And, um, and so I'll take and I'll do a, what I call a plus delta exercise. I learned it from somebody, not sure who, um, but I'll do a plus delta exercise where I will take a couple of the, the people on my team uh, and we'll get a team meeting together. And I'll, I'll take a couple people on my team and ask them to just kind of lead this, this exercise and I leave. And the hmm. exercise is list all of the things that um, for me as a leader are helpful for you, work for you, um, that you want me to keep doing. That's the plus side. On the Delta side, list all of those things that you feel like are 
um, either hindering you and your ability to do your job or something that you wish you had more of that you're not getting enough of or something you wish I would stop that, that you know, I may not realize is, is something that's impacting you. And it's kind of a, a group consensus list. Yeah. And, and, and they have a you know, person to just kind of write all this stuff down. And then they speak as a group. So no one person, unless they feel like identifying themselves as the person who, who selected that, that item, no one person is singled out for anything. And then <clears throat> I come back in the room and they, they share all this, this with me and break it down for me. And then I make a commitment at that point. Um, the question goes like this. What are the top two things that, that, that must happen now on the Delta list? Yes. Or, or, yes. Else, or else we derail quickly. And I make a commitment that those are the first things that change. I never make excuses for anything to explain why it is. Uh, some, some of the things that go up on the Delta list are things that I can't change. They're out yeah. of my control. And I, that's not the forum to, to give that feedback. That's the forum to say, let me take that back and, and circle back with you on exactly what we can do. And then, of course, that's where I can follow back up and say, mm, yeah, so this one is a little out of my control, but what's in our control is X, Y, Z, so why don't we work on this together? Um, that's, I would say, the tool that I've used most consistently about a year in once there's enough trust built and enough you know, feedback that's exchanged back and forth over that time. Uh, to be very vulnerable and willing to take the the criticism and feedback. The other thing I've always done is invite in any public setting, any critical feedback. I, I don't have any problems with critical feedback in public, um, particularly if it's something that leads to a good discussion that allows for better outcomes to, to come as a result of it. Well, that's a huge, that's a great example that you gave and <clears throat> Not just great, not just great, but brave. And and you you won't you won't see it that way necessarily that you're brave, but I think that I think that very few leaders go that way. That that they just don't. I I would do a little survey. It was kind of a pre um, pre printed. Somebody else streamed up the survey, but I would ask them to do it anonymously and that kind of thing. And and they they would be most times they would be very. Uh, Frank with me, but I kind of was anonymous. But I love what you're what you're recommending here. And I, do you recommend that other bosses do that? I, I do recommend that, that folks do it. Actually, it is an exercise that is um, in a, a piece of material that is available if you purchase the book and you get access to all of these really cool um, exercises and tools and and worksheets and meeting agenda ideas. Uh, there's a there's a ton of resources uh, once you purchase the book to help with your endeavor as a leader, and this is definitely one of them. I recommend it. I've, I've given the feedback to many folks who've been part of my teams over the years, and they've done it, and always, always been great feedback on the results of it. They've, all, they've also said it's one of the toughest things they've ever done. Ooh, baby. <laughs> hey, um, I want to, again, recommend this book, Belonging Factor by Devin Halliday. It's how great brands and great leaders inspire loyalty build community and grow profits. Devin, thank you for discussing chapter one with me. And I look forward to talking about chapter two with you very soon. So enjoy your day and we'll see you down the road. Thanks, Doug. Thanks. Thank you very much, Devin Halliday, for being with me today for chapter one. Next time it's gonna be chapter two of Belonging Factor. And that's the importance of belonging. If you'd like to see more bookcasts, go to this site, Anchor FM, Doug Fine.
Thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Defined Engagement Bookcast.